We are in a series in the book of John, and uh, we've been preaching verse by verse through the book of John for a while. We're going to be finishing up John chapter 9. And just to, uh, to get us where we're going, I just want to observe something about my life. Maybe it's true about your life, too. And that's that I'm glad I've grown up a little bit since my middle school years. Anybody else? Yeah, okay. Now, if you're a middle schooler, well, we have a middle school class, but some of you just graduated or just coming out of middle school. Uh, you're a teenager. We're not looking down on you. In fact, we were all you at one point. Um, some a little longer than others, but uh, we were all you at one point. And so we understand what it's like. But there's something funny about boys in middle school. I, I just have a saying. It's like boys pretty much stay in middle school for the rest of their lives, don't they? Come on, guys. You know, I mean, why is pull your finger joke still funny? Because it is. And I, it shouldn't be. But it is, you know. I, I don't care how old you are, right? But there are parts about my middle school years and teenage years that I'm really uh, glad. I'm glad I don't know everything anymore. Uh, it was such a burden knowing everything. And as I look back at myself um, as a middle schooler, early high schooler, um, I, I just, I'm glad like you didn't know me then and you know me now. Because if you had known me then, you would have been like, and heard some of the antics we did and some of the things that we said, you would have been like, what an untitled, arrogant, punk kid. And it wasn't really that we were arrogant. We were just very confident at that point in life. Now, I do remember one saying that I really like, and I think it was pretty good from my middle school and high school years. And we said this to our friends all the time. I don't know where it came from. Maybe some of you do. It probably some TV show or, or something. Um, but we would say, keep telling yourself that. <laughs> Anybody else say that? Keep telling yourself that. Like, as your friend would, would be making some, like, doing something stupid or saying something stupid about themselves or thinking they're all that, and, and you're like, keep telling yourself that, man. Like, it's not true. Keep telling yourself that. And I think there's something in all of humanity that there's, there's this arrogance of humanity that has maybe a little too much faith in oneself. Um, there's some arrogance in humanity that tends to believe what we want to believe and not believe what we don't want to believe. Anybody remember uh, SNL? Years ago, there was a saying, uh, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Anybody remember that saying? Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. We're pretty good at denial, aren't we? We're pretty good at telling ourselves things that our friends and our family and people that know us look at us and just go, keep telling yourself that, right? And for many people, I think the older and hopefully wiser you get, I think actually in many ways, the less of this sort of self-assured facade comes through. I think that's a good thing about maturing. It should happen as we, as we mature. It's partially because you've discovered your own weaknesses, right? Uh, you dis you've discovered that you don't know everything, and when you pretend like you do, you tend to mess things up. You know that you're not invincible or infallible anymore. You remember when feeling like you're invisible? This is probably more guys, right? Which is why guys tend to not live as long. Because <laughs> that risk assessment part of your brain hasn't developed yet, you know? Not until you're like 25. 
and then you you have an injury or you do something. I, I broke my ankle a couple of years ago, and like it's it's still in my head. And every time I walk or ride a bike or anything now, it's it's there, and I realize that feeling of invincibility not not really there anymore. You realize you're not so much invincible, and hopefully you get to the point of recognizing you don't know everything and don't have all the answers. And this brings us to the conclusion of John chapter 9. And if you have your Bibles along with you and you want to follow along, you can start turning over to John chapter 9. And I just want to catch you up really quick on this whole section because it happens at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Jewish holiday known as Sukkot. Uh, When the whole city would be lit up, there would be booths all over the city. They'd set up basically tents. It'd be like a giant family camp. Tens of thousands of people would crowd into the city. And uh, there would be a water ceremony where they draw water and they anticipate the coming of the messianic age and they and they celebrate um, the harvest that year and then there would be lights that they would light up the whole city where normally in a city you can imagine Grand Junction no street lights no electricity uh, just a little flickering of candles and torches here and there and for this week to 10 day long period of time they would light up particularly the temple court with huge torches and the whole city would glow. It was just like one big festive party. They'd have worship nights of singing that going all night long. And it was just an awesome week to be alive. And probably the highlight of one of the highlights of the kids year, just like, you know, maybe Christmas time is for your family. And so Jesus walks into this ceremony in the midst of all this one day in the temple courts, and he makes this really bold statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see these lights, these giant lights, they're just pointing towards me. They're actually about me. I am the light of the world. I am the one who gives light to those who are in the dark. And you know, so many times in the book of John, as we go through it, what you see is Jesus makes a profound statement in the spiritual realm that then he goes on to illustrate in the physical realm. And that's exactly what we see in John chapter 9. As he walks by, him and his disciples, they walk by this this man, and this man was born blind his whole life. We kind of get the idea that he's, he's a grown man, he's an adult, um, never been able to see probably physical um, manifestations of this blindness in, in the way his eyes looked, or maybe he didn't even have eyes at all. And uh, as, he, uh, as the disciples walked by, they point this guy out and they went, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Because that was their way of thinking. Karma, either he sinned in the womb or his parents sinned, That's why he's being punished for something. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's the wrong way to think. Wasn't him, wasn't his parents. Instead, I want you to look at this situation in another way. This is a situation that God is here and God wants to move in this man's life. God wants to move in compassion. The power of God is going to be evident in this this situation. I am here to do the works of the Father. Remember, Jesus says, I always do what I see the Father doing. And that's what I want you to do. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying in this moment to his disciples. And then it's really cool because he does what the father was doing that day, which if you're a middle school or high school or come on, any, any age of dude, you're going to like this next. He hawks up a loogie, right? And spits. This is what the father's doing. Jesus only does what the, does what the father's doing. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, he spits and makes some mud and rubs it right in this guy's eyes. 
who I said last time, bad dad joke, uh, he didn't see it coming. So I got another really good dad joke last night. Somebody came up to me and said, you missed the opportunity um, to say that. And I can't remember it, but maybe it'll come to me as we go through the message. But anyway, he makes mud, he rubs it on this guy's eyes, and then he tells him, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam, which is, you know, very uh, sacred, where they would draw the water for this ceremony that was going on this week. And the guy obeys Jesus. He, he claws his way over, you know, to the, to the pool of Siloam, or somebody leads him, and he washes, and immediately this man's sight is restored to him, and Jesus performs this incredible miracle, and everybody goes crazy for a number of reasons. One, this had never happened before in history. You see some dramatic miracles throughout the Old Testament, but this had never happened. In fact, according to their own tradition, uh, only the Messiah, when he came, would be able to do this miracle, to open the eyes of the blind. And so everybody goes crazy. People are like, it's him. No, it's not him. It just looks like him. And he's like, it's me, it's me, it's me. And it's just all this drama. And then they take him before the religious leaders because they had to confirm that this thing actually happened. And everybody's going crazy. And they're like, this is a messianic miracle. And they bring him in front of the religious leaders. And they're like, what happened? And he gives the whole thing. Well, this, he took mud. He put it in my eyes. He told me to wash. I did. I can see. And everybody's like, woo. But they're like, <clears throat> excuse me, what day did this happen on? It's, it's the Sabbath, isn't it? It's like, we're going to have to report this to management. Management is not going to be very happy about this. And there's these religious leaders, and, and it's heartbreaking, actually. They're witnessing a dramatic move of God right in front of them, that God did this profound thing, and all they can think about is their technical little stipulations about what is and what isn't legal on the Sabbath. I think technically he needed some mud and put it in his eye. Mm, 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 mm. Violation. And so they go on to just grill this guy. They don't believe him. They drag his parents in. And his parents know there's, there's more on the line here. There's something very serious on the line here because they had already decided at this point, the Pharisees had, that anybody who confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, they were going to put him out of the synagogue, which is excommunication, but it's not just, hey, boot you out to the church down the road. This was, you're going to lose your standing in the community. Everybody's going to look down upon you. And it was too steep of a price to pay. So they're like, well, yep, that's our son. Yep, he was born blind. We don't know anything else. Ask him. And they chicken out. And we talked about last time we were in John a couple weeks ago. We were like, well, who do you fear more, humankind or God? Whose opinion weighs the heaviest in your life, humans or God? And so that's where we jump into the text where we left off last time with the Pharisees, whose minds were already made up. They had already decided when it came to Jesus. And the fact that they just witnessed a profound miracle that should have been like, whoa, opened their eyes, they wouldn't even consider this new information, this new data. And so verse 24, it says this, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And so they're really grilling this guy now, and they're really pressing on him, and they're like, you're not glorifying God because you're, you're saying this thing about this man. 
give glory to God like he's not already. Look, what God, look, I'm healed. No, I, we want you to condemn Jesus. Say he's a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And you realize he, he hadn't seen Jesus up to this point because Jesus was, well, he was blind, right? He didn't see Jesus. Jesus just came up to him, mud, you know, the whole thing. And so he doesn't really know Jesus. I'm sure he's heard rumors. I'm sure he's collected some information, but he didn't really know who Jesus is. All he knows is he has experienced the move of God in a powerful way in his life. And he's like, sinner, I don't know. I don't know the guy, but one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. I was blind, now I see. One thing I know is, is this happened in my life. God did this thing in my life. One of the uh, disciples of Jesus, Peter, one of the closest disciples of later, right, and he was telling us, I, always, I want you to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And the idea is there's a lot of people wandering around the world without hope, without meaning, without purpose in their life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have hope, you have meaning, you have purpose in your life. You, your life is on mission. Your life is on a trajectory, you have an eternal hope. You have a hope that goes beyond just life being good here and now for a, for a second in the scope of eternity. You have a promise of an eternity that's more than you can ever imagine. And relationship, intimate relationship with God that will never end. You have a wonderful hope, no matter how tough life gets. And Peter says that hope should impact the way you live enough that people look at you and they take notice and they go, what? what's different about you? That as we're facing, I, I see what you're going through, but where's your, where do you get your faith and your hope in this circumstance? And you have an answer. Now, maybe it's, it's, not, as, you know, it's not as dramatic as this guy's. I don't personally know anybody born blind that was healed. Some of you might. <laughs> But you have the hope that Jesus Christ died for you and rose again so that you could have life in him. That's a hope we all share in common if you're a follower of Jesus that gives you reference and perspective for anything you walk through in life. I know that Jesus died for my sins so that I can have relationship with him and he rose again. And I have the hope of life with him. So no matter what happens in this life, I have the hope that I'm going to spend eternity with him. He promised me life. He promised me life in abundance. Now it doesn't mean that trials won't come. But I have a joy and I have a hope and I have a peace in his presence now because of what he did. And then many of you have another, you have more than that, don't you? You have more than the fact that he saved you and gave you the hope that we all have in common, which is amazing, which is the greatest thing. But you also have moments where you know that God has stepped in and moved in your life in powerful ways, maybe rescued you from something, maybe saved you from something. Uh, maybe it was the path you were headed down and, and the circumstances you look back and you're like, I know that I know that I know that God put that person in my life right at the right moment. There's no way that was coincidence. How many of you have a story like that? Raise your hand. Yeah, a, a ton of you in the room. That's a lot of stories. I would love to hear your stories sometime. Because I have lots of those kinds of moments in my life where I look back on 
I mean, I've got some crazy stuff. I've got some sort of non-dramatic stuff. I have some stuff that I look back and go, hmm, that's interesting. I think that was God moving there. And then I have sometimes I'm like, I have no doubt that God stepped in. I have two different occasions in my life where um, God specifically broke cars in weird, dramatic ways while we were moving. <laughs> and both times it was, it was keeping me from, from going somewhere that I know would have sidelined my life or or had bad um, implications down the road, led me in a direction I shouldn't have gone. I have no doubt as I look back, I'm like, those were God moments. Um, so you might not want to loan me a car because this... <laughs> so a lot of you have stories like that where you're like, you know what? God showed up in my life in this moment. God put these things together and there's no other explanation. I know it was God. It's the story of what he's done in your life. And it begins with the fact that he rescued you, that he saved you, that he brought you into his family, that he died and rose again. And you have encountered and met the living God. Have a hope. You don't have to have all the answers. Did you get that? Guy's not like, you don't have to have all the metaphysical answers for, you know, why is there suffering in the universe and all those things. You're like, I, I don't know. But what I do know, this one thing I know, Man, Jesus showed up in my life. He gave me hope in this situation. He's been so present. He provided for me in this dramatic way that I, I've got no other explanation. Tell your story. You don't have to have all the answers. One, what's the one thing you know? What's the simple thing that God's done for you? He brought me freedom in this area. He delivered me in this area. So verse 26, it says, they, they go on, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I love this guy. He answered, I've, to I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> I love it. This guy's like, he gets a little bit like, you know, you want to go? Come on. And I love it because he's fearless. He's got, here's, here's what you got to realize about this guy versus his parents, right? His parents recognize, ooh, we've got too much to lose in this situation. We can't really take one for Team Jesus. But he's fearless. What does the guy have? His whole life he's been a beggar, and all of a sudden he experiences the power of the living God in his life in a dramatic, profound way, and the dude's fearless. He has nothing to lose, nothing to hold him back. I think that would be a good lesson for you because all of the things that you hold on to, your status, your position, your privilege, your stuff, all of those things, you realize you can't take that with you, right? It's all temporary. You have one life to live for Jesus. You have one life to give to him. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as, as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And they set up this, this dichotomy. They set up this opposing thing right now. Um, no, we're disciples of Moses. And the implication here is if you become a disciple of Jesus, you can't be a follower of what Moses taught. Which is funny because back in chapter five, when Jesus is arguing with these guys, he, he makes this powerful statement. He says, hey, don't think that I'm gonna accuse you before the father. Your accuser is Moses, actually, of whom your hopes are set. 
If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, all the way back in, in Deuteronomy, Moses had prophesied about the prophet that would come, out of, come after him. And Jesus draws that back as, as Moses prophesies about this messianic figure. And he says, that was me. Moses has been writing about me. But because, of, because you think you know it all, because you've predecided about me, you're going to end up missing me, who the very one that Moses was writing about the whole time. Don't miss me. They set up this dichotomy. If you, you know, it's Moses or Jesus. And you know what's really interesting is for the last 2,000 years, um, Judaism has really set this dichotomy up and, and stuck with this. It's been an interesting thing to watch. You know, um, Jesus prophesied in the profound prophecy. Uh, when he was walking through the streets of Jerusalem and they looked up at the temple, massive stones, wonder of the world. And his disciples were like, wow, look at that. How amazing. And Jesus says, you see that? It's all going to be torn down. It's unthinkable. You can't be serious. And Jesus says, yeah, it's all going to be torn down. And then he goes on and, and he actually, in a, in a section, he weeps over Jerusalem he says, your house is going to be left to you desolate. The temple, all this will be torn down. And 40 years after Jesus prophesied this, it happened. Jesus also prophesied. He says, Jerusalem will be overrun or tread upon by, by foreigners. The people are going to be hauled off. And Jerusalem will be overrun until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Interesting statement. And we see this interesting thing begin to happen. So for thousands of years, a couple thousand years, Jewish people have, by and large, we share the same father Abraham had many sons. We share the same heritage. And yet they had this thing set up. I mean, even, in, in, even today, Israel is, you know, one of the most secular nations in the world. And there's this thing set up in Judaism, like you could be a Buddhist and a Jew. You can be an atheist and a Jew, which is really interesting, isn't it? But one of the things is you can't, you can't be a follower of Jesus and a Jew. But that all began to change in the last century. And in the last century, more people, more Jewish people began to follow Jesus than in a couple thousand years of history. And last century, the, the Jerusalem, which had been overrun by the Ottoman Empire and Byzantine and all these other foreign powers, Jewish people returned. And they're in the city. And I think <laughs> that God's doing some amazing thing in our time, in our age. And I love what, what Paul said when it came to, you know, the, the Jewish people in Romans chapter 11. He said, I, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite. You realize like the whole, our whole faith following Jesus, it was started by a bunch of really observant Jewish people. <laughs> I mean, all of them in the very beginning. And then as Gentiles flooded in, that's most of you and me, as Gentiles flooded in, the thing began to look a little bit different. And there was this dichotomy that rose up even, you know, in the church and the persecution began by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. All this stuff happened. But Paul, as he's writing 
to all these Gentile believers, he's like, hey, did God reject his people? By no means. I mean, look at me. <laughs> I'm one of the top notch. Pharisee type. And he goes on and, and he's like, did, did they stumble so far to beyond recovery? Not at all. He goes on, he says, instead, no, the fact that, that, that God allowed this to happen means that you, the Gentiles, are invited into the family and the people of God. But don't get cocky. He says, you were grafted in the unnatural branches, but don't get cocky because how much easier would it be for God to graft back in the original branches? Paul uses this language. And then he, in Romans chapter 11, he closes this out this way. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And see, I believe as you put together um, passages of scripture that at the end, that what we're going to see over the upcoming years is countless people from the Jewish that, that trace their heritage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, embracing their true Messiah. We're beginning to see it. We've seen more in the last century than in a couple thousand years of history. And I think we're going to begin to see it more and more until Jesus comes back. All right, little bunny trail. But verse 30, so the man answered, now, that is remarkable. So remember, they're like, you're a follower of Jesus. We're, we're disciples of Moses. You can't be both. And, and he, this man says, well, well, that is remarkable. You don't know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, this guy gets it. He doesn't have the years and years of, you know, education, synagogue education. No, he's been a beggar on the street for his whole life, and yet he gets it. He, his spiritual eyes are open, and he understands it. He's like, your own tradition says nobody could do this but the, the Messiah. Clearly, and now you're saying this guy isn't even from God? What are you guys thinking? What are you thinking? Common sense. This guy has a strong dose of common sense and spiritual insight versus all the intellectual learning of the Pharisees. He is open. He clear-eyed evaluates the data and the facts before him. And at this point, he goes, how could this man not be from God? See, the Pharisees weren't willing to look at any of that. They had predecided. They had made up their mind. They knew what they, you know, what their, they weren't willing to go there. This Jesus didn't fit their, their uh, paradigm. This Jesus was a threat to their power and their position and their status. They weren't willing to go there. They had pre-decided. I, I, I thought of a little cheesy phrase. Pre-decided makes you blinded, right? Doesn't really rhyme. Um, but the blinded guy, the blind guy, he, he now sees, and the guys that are pre-decided, they're blinded. They can't see. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They go back to their sort of karma traditions. How dare you? You, your parents, you, your birth, you did something. You were steeped in sin at birth. 
We can't listen to you. Your opinion doesn't count or matter. See, John makes an interesting statement in John chapter 3 after the conversation with with, uh, Nicodemus and right after the most famous verse perhaps in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on, he says this. Here, here, here's, this is the verdict. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Life or light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They loved darkness instead of life, light because their deeds were evil, and they lash out at the sky. I've heard a saying, and I think it's pretty profound to think through. It says this, that truth doesn't mind being challenged, but a lie can't stand to be challenged. And even this guy's testimony, I mean, all he said is, I don't know, I think he's a prophet. I I don't know. He opened my eyes. But this guy pushes back, and they can't stand it. They lash out at him. They had made their mind up. They were willfully blind. They had made their choice. I think for lots of people, it's kind of like that when it comes to, to embracing and believing the God of the Bible that there's something about my life or there's something about the way I've chosen to live my life or, or, or the things I want to do or the, the freedom I have in an area where, I, I don't know, the idea or the concept of a God who is sovereign or is above that, who I'm accountable to, I don't really like that. And because of that, they push back. They don't follow God. Maybe some of you, that was your story for a, for a season, for a decade or decades, where there was something in your life and you just... There was something drawing you, but you just weren't willing to go there. There's a famous uh, atheist um, and a philosopher. His name was Aldous Huxley. He was the author of The Brave New World. I think he wrote like 50 books. Very famous guy in the last century. In fact, so famous that his picture uh, appeared on uh, the, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album cover for different reasons. <laughs> But Aldous Huxley, um, in his early, he was a very famous philosopher, very influential. And in his early life, as he, he was writing, he was writing under this sort of framework of life is meaningless, the universe is meaningless. So you just kind of got to try to figure out a, a practical, you know, way to, to make it through this life because it all is basically meaningless. And his sort of cynical exterior began to break down in the 1930s. And, and there was something within him. He could no longer handle living in this materialist, meaningless universe. Instead, he would go on to embrace mysticism, unlike uh, like T.S. Eliot, which is another famous atheist that went on to convert to Christianity, C.S. Lewis, another famous agnostic who went on to convert and embrace Jesus. But he went for drugs, actually. And his famous last words, um, he, he was, that's probably why he was on the Beatles <laughs> album cover in the 60s. But his famous last words written to his wife because he couldn't speak were 100 micrograms LSD, which she dosed him with, and he went out in a trip. But in the midst of all this, he had a very honest self-recognition. And he writes this very profound, honest thing. He, he talks about how he, when he went into Philosophy 101 and began to study philosophy, that basically he had sort of already had his mind made up. He said, I didn't want there to be a God. I didn't want there to be a God who'd spoken the Ten Commandments, you know, that had some sort of claim of authority over my life. He said, I I wanted to believe that life was meaningless, 
that I could just sort of make up my own path and, and it would all be fine. He said, why did I want to believe this? Well, if there was a girl I wanted to sleep with. And he goes on to say, like, if there's a God who has this sort of authority over my life and has something to speak into my life, then that's going to impact the way that I live. And because of that, I did not want to believe in a God. I already had certain things I believed in, and God threatened that. And that's why, for me, God wasn't real. In fact, he goes on to write this. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Isn't that like a profound moment of honesty from this guy? He's like, really, when it boils down to it, I did not want to be a God. My mind wasn't really open to a God because I wanted to live life the way that I wanted to live life. And I think that's where so many people, when it comes to um, following God, that's where so many people land. In fact, listen to me, young people in the room. If you're, if you're here, you're under 30, you're in your 20s, you're in your, your teens, so many people, their story of, you know, is like, man, I love God. I'd never walk away from God. But their story of walking away from God in their lives is I began to do something that I knew God. I was in a relationship and I compromised. And I began to live my life in a way that, that I knew God didn't really approve of. And the, the discomfort in that became such that I had to make a decision and I chose what I want. So many people behave their way away from Jesus they don't believe their way away from Jesus. It's not they wake up one morning and goes, I don't think there's a God who created all this. It's that they, they come to a spot where it's like there's a cognitive dissonance between the reality of where they're living and the reality of what they believe, and they choose what they want to choose instead of following Jesus. And I'm just telling you, I bet if we went around and told some stories, there would be a, a whole lot of people in the room that would say, let me tell you how much regret I have because that's my story. There was a decade of my life where I walked away from Jesus and I look back and that is what I regret most in life. Where I served myself, where I refused to submit myself to Jesus as my Lord. But I said, nah, can't be real. I put it out of my mind. I ignored that voice and I walked the other direction. You don't want that kind of regret in your life. You want a story of, I, I followed Jesus, and when my will bumped up against the will of God, it was hard. But I asked for, for the Holy Spirit to empower me, and I submitted my will to what I knew Jesus would have me do in the moment. And I have no regrets. God freed me. God saved me. He delivered me. He's been there. It's not always been easy but I'm following him with my life. I think that's the story you want, not the story of the Pharisees 
who said, I've got it all figured out, and there's no room here for Jesus because I know what I want, and I'm not willing to consider the other side. Verse 35. I love this. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I love this because Jesus goes after this guy. Remember, he's an outcast in society. And now he's an outcast even in his town. They've thrown him out. Get out of here. He, he's been looked down upon his whole life. Man, look at that guy born in sin. A little bit of pity. Throw a little coin over there. But Jesus goes after him. Jesus loves him. Jesus cares for him. Jesus takes the time to find him, to seek him out. And as I look at my life, there are seasons where I know Jesus went out of the way to pursue me when I wasn't really pursuing him. And I know that's a lot of your story as well. The beauty of grace and the beauty of of the gospel is he moves towards us first. He moved towards us in grace. You still have to embrace the free gift, but it's a free gift. It's nothing you've done. You didn't earn it. Salvation and life in him is a free gift, and he moves towards you first. He loves you first. He invites you in first and asks you to respond in faith and trust to him. And here he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this guy, I love it. He he doesn't put on airs. He doesn't try to bluff. Jesus refers to the Son of Man, this theme that ties back to Daniel of this judge that rises up. It's this picture of the coming kingdom of God. It's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It's this messianic picture. And Jesus asks, do you believe in him? And the guy's like, who is he, sir? The man asks, tell me so that I may believe in him. See, a heart that's open. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. Lord, he calls him Lord. This may be like one of the shorter prayers of salvation in scripture. Lord, I believe. Paul says in Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this man in this recognition, in this moment, recognizes Jesus not as just a man in front of him, but as the Lord, and he bows down and worships him. This is the idea of of somebody bowing down before um, a king or a magistrate, kissing the feet of the king, giving their life, giving what they have in service. He worships him. He recognizes who Jesus is. He worships him. See, worship is something that's deeper than just what we do when we sing. I'm going to invite Winston back up. Uh, We're going to close here in just a moment with with a song of worship. But you know what? Worship is more than just song. That's part of it. It's a significant part when we lift our praise and our exaltation and our hearts up and our, and our hearts and emotions respond in worship to our God. And that's a beautiful part of worship, but it doesn't stop there. 
Paul in Romans says, here is your spiritual act of worship to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That there's something about worship that that says, I'm going to bow down and kiss the feet of my king. I'm going to give my life as an offering to my Lord, to my king. That when my will bumps up against Jesus, I'm going to say, your will be done, not mine. I'm going to worship you and worship the heart that's expressed as, as worship here in, what, in the words coming out of my mouth, Lord, I want that to be visible in my life. I want that to pour out of my life as my life is, re, is returned to you and lived for you in, in grateful response to what you did for me and the grace I received and the healing. I was blind and now I see. The healing, the freedom, that you experienced. And if you're here and you experience that as a young child and you don't even barely remember embracing Jesus, just be so thankful for the fact that you've lived your whole life following him. That's an amazing testimony. That he's saved you from so many things that you might otherwise have encountered. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, here's how the Pharisee stories end. Here's the chapter. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See, I think what Jesus is saying here is, uh, they're like, what, are we blind? And Jesus is like, if you were blind like this guy, that's not, that wouldn't mean you, you were born in sin. But, but here's your guilt. Here's your sin. You say you can see, but you reject the very one of God. You say you're in the light, but you refuse to come into the light. You have predecided. You have decided that it's not worth it. And so you refuse to follow me. And your guilt remains. What I love about this blind man, I mean, he had been receiving free gifts his whole life, hadn't he? And I think maybe this is part of his heart that just embraced Jesus. Because he had never really earned anything in his life. He just stood and he begged and he was used to receiving a free gift. And this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks and obstacles. The Pharisees, they thought they had to dial it in and keep, you know, all 613 laws perfectly, plus all the regulations they added on top. And they're like, we got it done. We checked it off. We've earned it. This guy didn't earn anything. He just received and embraced the free gift of God. Lord, I believe. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And the question today is, are you going to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord? Maybe that's for the first time for you. Maybe it's the recognition of, man, I am tired of stiff-arming you, Jesus. I want to embrace you as Lord and say, Lord, I believe in you, and I want to worship you. I'm going to worship you, and I understand. That means there's going to be changes that you bring to my life to align my life with you. But right now, I just receive that free gift of grace that you offer. Forgiveness for my sins. I want to turn from my sin. I want to follow you. I want to love you and worship you with my life. 
If that's you in the room, if that's you online, you saw this guy's prayer. There's not a magic formula prayer. It's a response of your heart. And as we sing this next song, and I invite you to stand, I want to invite you to do that. Just call out to the Lord. Do some business with God. For others in the room, are you responding to Jesus in worship? Does your life look like worship? You may have believed on him decades ago. Does your life look like, Lord, I believe I'm going to worship you? Are you someone that is waiting for his return when you can actually bow down physically, but you're not just waiting for that? You're doing that in your heart on a daily basis now. If not, why don't you take some time to confess that as we sing and just make that right and make a new commitment that, Lord, this week, I'm going to follow you. Let's sing.